Hello and welcome to the program. You can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Regular listeners will know that each Monday night we have a panel of experts to answer your questions, deal with the queries and discuss the hot topics of the day. Aina Nilauna, Richard Collins and Niall Hatch, usually. Aina will be with us shortly. Richard and Niall are at their respective homes. Now, I can hear them, but they can't hear me yet. Shall we um, eavesdrop? Yeah, I, you. I, remember, I remember, oh, it's many years ago now, but I remember being at the dart station in Black Rock and I looked over the wall just from the dart station. There was a male common scoter swimming around just a, a couple of metres offshore. It was in close, like a little mm. mallard, um, just bobbing around. So I don't know what happened to that. I'd never seen one up so close before. It was amazing. Probably oiled, was he? No, he seemed to be okay. He, well, he, yeah. was, he wasn't on the shore. He was in the water. Although, obviously, with black plumage, you couldn't really tell if it was oil, I guess. So yeah, it's a possibility, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that's but true. something must be forcing him towards the coast. Uh, yeah. Oil is the usual culprit. That's true. Mm, that is very see, true. Occasionally, I listen in to their conversations before we go on air when the red light comes on. And what are they discussing? Birds. Richard Collins at his home in Malahide and Nile Hatch is out there in Greystones. Boys, you're talking about scoters. What's a scoter, Nile? Oh, scoters, they're, they're, they're wonderful sea ducks. Um, uh, well, they, they, in the winter, particularly on the sea, they breed on, on freshwater lakes most commonly. And the, the species that we have mainly here in Ireland is a lovely bird called the common scoter, although unfortunately it's anything but, as you might have heard Richard and I discussing there, uh, because it's no longer common. There's a tiny breeding population left in the northwest of Ireland, but even the wintering numbers, we, we still get a few thousand but they're they're dwindling. It's a it's a jet black duck. At least the male is, apart from a, a little saddle of yellow on its beak, and the female is dark brown, with sort of a paler cheek. But you normally don't get a good view. They're little corks bobbing up and down on the waves, way way out on the open sea. But you saw one at the weekend, last weekend, that is, a white-winged scoter, I yes, heard you say. Uh, that's right, American white-winged scoter. It's up. Uh, it's been up for the last few weeks on Ackle Island, off a, a place called Valley Pier. Uh, and uh, it uh, it was really a real treat to see it. It's just been bobbing around there in the sea. It's a female, and uh, it's the first to have a record for Ireland. So it's obviously sparked uh, quite, a, uh, quite a, a rush of people to go and see it there. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's really nice. That part of, of the Irish coast is, is usually very good for these North American vagrant ducks that turn up uh, but this one is particularly obliging so yeah it was a treat so, to see so the that. female isn't black presumably it looks a bit like a mallard is it more broody brown sort of thing it's, it's darker than that so from a distance they still would look black up, up close you can see that they're actually a very dark sooty brown um, but uh, having seen that uh, that, that American white winged scoter now in Mayo uh, that's, uh, there's only six uh, species of scoter in the world and now I've seen all of them in Ireland so I'm look very pleased you. about that <laughs> another one for your list you're a twitcher Niall you're a twitcher anyway let's get on with the programme as they say now Niall Hatch a story about wolves being shot culled in Sweden Yes, and I know we've talked in the, in the past about the issues around uh, around wolves and these large predators and how they are controversial. We know that wolves um, they're a really important part of the ecosystem. They are a you know, key apex predator, so they do control populations of deer and so on. So it has been very good to see them returning to much of Europe, but unfortunately there is also a conflict then sometimes with hunters and particularly with farmers who see them as a threat to livestock. And this is something that the Scandinavian countries have really been grappling with now in uh, in recent years as the wolves have been expanding back in, particularly from Finland. That was a real repository for them. Russia and Finland were the areas where the wolves really clung on. And from there, they've been sp- expanding back across Sweden and Norway. There's even been some sightings in Denmark recently as well. And this has prompted calls for them to be culled to, in certain areas to keep them away from, uh, or to prevent the threat, I suppose, to livestock. And uh, there's no particular threat to humans. They're, they're an animal, despite their their some reputation from, from fairy tales and so on, Little Red Riding Hood and so on. Uh, they don't pose a risk to humans, but uh, they, they avoid us, but they will prey on livestock. So, yes, it led to this controversial decision by the by the Swedish government to allow the culling of wolves. And in, in recent weeks, uh, no fewer than 54 of these uh, wild dogs have been, have been killed by hunters. So, uh, sad to see it, I have to say. It would be, would be nice if they could be left alone and left to recolonize. I think they have a really key role to play in the ecosystem of Europe. Um, so, um, hopefully, hopefully it won't set them back too much and the species will still be able to expand into areas of Scandinavia where they're more welcomed and where perhaps there's less conflict with humans. 
The great example of the value of wolves is, of course, Yellowstone Park. They were brought back into Yellowstone Park after being exterminated there. And there have been wonderful benefits for the ecosystem ever since. Plants that were missing for decades are returning and animals coming back. Things like beaver are there. Now, Sweden, the north of Sweden, could easily be a a European Yellowstone Park. It's good. Okay, the hunters won't like it. Because, after all, the reason, part of the reason things were so successful in Yellowstone is that there were too many deer destroying everything and the elimination of the wolves allowed those deers to increase and multiply bringing them back control the deer and the hunters in sweden won't like that and there's a huge hunting lobby in sweden up to now they used to tolerate the odd one up in the north but not when they moved south into central sweden but the attitude is changing i think right-wing parties and things like that are, are inclined to be anti-wolf whereas the social democrat type parties are not that's the impression i have there does seem to be a strong urban-rural divide on this, yes, and, and even in, in countries like Sweden and Norway where there have been these culls of wolves, it's been uh, sort of very much accepted in the more rural areas, but in the city areas there's a, a lot of opposition to it, so it's certainly a very fraught topic. But despite that, it has been interesting, and from my conservationist point of view, very heartening to see that wolves have been recovering across many European countries. They are becoming more numerous in Iberia, so there's parts of Spain now where they're becoming relatively numerous, moving back into Portugal. And in Italy, they've made a big resurgence, even they're in the, on the outskirts of Rome mm-hmm. itself, where they don't, uh, they don't cause any problems for the humans, but they are um, preying on the wild boar that are a nuisance to the humans there. So I think in, in Italy, they are seeing that these animals do have a benefit. And that's uh, something but that's very- going to be featured on Back From The Brink, our TV series, Nile, which you'll be able to see in a couple of months on RT television. Yes, yes, absolutely. A, a wonderful programme involving broadcasters from all across the European Broadcasting Union, showcasing how, if given the chance, nature can bounce back. It's really a celebration of the, the conservationists and the scientists and, and the, the committee amateurs as well who are making a real effort to try and save and restore species uh, like the wolf uh, like the like like uh, the bear uh, like the, the the bald ibis that we talked about on the program um, a, a couple of months back as well so it really is heartening to see this and some lovely stories from from Ireland in it as well including yeah. uh, about oysters which I think is a particularly exciting one yeah it's going to be great anyway I'm sure you saw the Irish Times today in your news agents there was a wonderful photograph on the front page taken by Finbar O'Rourke and it's of swans performing a mating ritual on a lake in Drum Fee in County Carla well Richard Collins is our man on swans. Richard, you've seen this picture. What do you think? What's going on there? Explain to our listeners. Yes, I did see it, Derek, and it is a classic picture of what's called the post-copulatory display. Now, we like to think of um, copulation simply as a matter of fertilizing eggs, but it's much more than that. It's also a pair bonding mechanism. I saw swans copulating in the middle of December once. So, and it goes on much longer. They don't copulate that much, but they do so occasionally. It's really a display, and at the end of it, there's foreplay going into it. A beautiful set of rituals, ballet, synchronized swimming, a penguin display where they, they go straight up with their necks together. And after they copulate, they don't just go their separate ways. They have an afterplay, another ritual, not as elaborate, in which they wind down from the big event. And at the end of it, you get this face-to-face head swirling, the two heads twisting and turning, breasts up against each other, slightly out of the water. Now, there are several other displays that have an element of that in it, but I think it is most likely to be that particular display. And how appropriate, given tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Indeed. Yes, indeed it is. It's a perfect heart. Is there any danger that a mute swan could mate with the wrong type of swan? Or does the ritual display help to prevent that from happening? Yes, Derek, you hit the nail on the absolute head. The ritual displays are all about... It's like logging onto the, 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 the bank machine for the money. You have to do a certain act. You stick in the card, you type in the right pin, you wait for a response, and then you there's a protocol, a set of procedures that you must follow. And if you get any of them wrong, or the bank gets any of them wrong... You won't get your money. Now, if two birds are going to copulate, 
one, usually the male displays, the female responds onto the next uh, movement, and he does the next thing, and then she does the next thing, and if all the protocol works out, they end up copulating. So there is this. Now, if it's the wrong kind of swan, if it's a mute swan facing a hooper, for instance, the hooper has displays, elaborate displays, but they're a bit different from from the mute swan. So if it's the wrong kind of swan, it's likely to break down. Now, it may exist at another level as well. Remember, it's a long-term monogamous pair. So it is counting on the female to do the same sort of thing, his own female. So there's refinement. It could discriminate among pairs, shall we say. The wrong kind of uh, the neighbor's wife turns up and it might end up that uh, they do slightly wrong things and it doesn't work. Oh, dear. Anyway, you know what they say, Richard, all is fair in love and war. What we've just been discussing there is love. But what about the war? We got a very interesting email with a video attached from John Lombard. He emailed a video of an adult swan drowning a juvenile. The video was taken at the Cake Club last November, and he has a question for the panel. So here's John. Hiya, Derek. Uh, we made this video last November on the Cake Club in County Kildare in a, one of the lakes they have there. We noticed a bit of commotion on the edge of the lake, and we went over, took the phone out, and we saw an adult mute swan basically drowning one of its own. Well, I assume it was one of its own. It's a juvenile swan. It was pretty brutal, to be honest. He continually held him around the neck and stuck his head under the water until he stopped moving, effectively. At one stage, the juvenile looked like he was trying to get away, but the swan sort of blocked him and held him down again. The result was the juvenile drowned, effectively. Didn't make it. So... I was just taken aback by the behaviour. It seems crazy. I'm assuming that the swan, the mute swan, was an adult male and it was drowning one of its own juveniles. I understand it's something to do with the oncoming breeding season and, and territory, but it just seemed crazy that it's drowning one of its own chicks so it can have more chicks the following season. Anyway, I just was fascinated by it, so I was happy to share it with you. I know Richard is an expert on swans. So I, I was just wondering, is this common practice or is it rare or what he makes of it? Well, it is a typical behaviour of swans. Think of the problem the daddy swan has at this time of year. He has a family of swans on his territory. Now, they can eat a lot. In fact, at peak times, they can eat about three and a half kilos of wet water weeds every day. Now, you might have nine cygnets and the wife and yourself. That is a huge demand. And the daddy has to clear all that area of other swans so that his wife and children have access to it and aren't getting the bit taken out of their mouth, shall we say. So now the, the new season will be up fairly soon. He has to start thinking ahead. His wife is going to have to form eggs. That's going to require uh, plenty of food for her. And then she's going to lay and the youngsters are going to come out and he doesn't want a new clutch of youngsters coming out when last year's crowd are occupying the territory and cleaning it out, eating all the water weeds. So he has a problem. He's got to get the youngsters out of there, get them off. They have to graduate. They can't stay at home any longer. We are going to throw you out. That's what it's all about. So what did they do? Well, the cygnets have a built-in mechanism. They turn whitish. And they have a lovely squeaky sound, even when they're quite big. Sounds a bit ridiculous, but that begins to fade as well. The squeaky sound is a trigger to keep the daddy happy and uh, not aggressive. And the white, of course, is the thing that's really going to knock him out. He'll tolerate a brown cygnet, but he's increasingly upset by a white bird on the territory. And the cygnets are turning white. And that's a red rag to a bull, in a sense, a white rag to a swan, shall we say. So he turns on them. If they won't go, he'll turn on them. Now, this case, the cygnet was killed. Now, that's relatively rare. Usually, the cygnets get the message. They clear off. There's a, a double-stage thing. They tend to go out of the pond and live 
out of the pond for a bit. He doesn't tend to chase them when they're on land. But ultimately, they must go. And if they don't, he will actually physically attack them, as happens in this case. And in battles like that, well, the odd death does occur, and it has occurred here, I gather. It is um, it's a very interesting occurrence. It's, it's, it's interesting to see this video, but I would caution uh, the listeners that uh, some people will find it distressing. It is very graphic. In this video, you can clearly see the male swan, the father, grabbing its signet by the neck, holding its head underwater to deliberately drown it. Um, so it, it, it isn't comfortable viewing, but it is still a really interesting document of something that happens in the natural world that's sometimes overlooked. Uh, we tend to think of swans as being these very peaceful, graceful birds, but of course that's just us humans projecting our own hopes and wishes and desires on them they're in fact can be very aggressive and this is how the male as Richard said ensures that there'll be better success for the next batch of signets to come along they get very aggressive towards their their own chicks or their own offspring and they will chase them away and as you said Richard normally most of those signets will take the hint when when dad gets a bit pushy and they will leave and they'll go off they join these bachelor herds as we call them where they gather together in their adolescence uh, in groups of both males and females together so not just strictly bachelors but that's what they're called Uh, and then they will pair up and then they become much more um, intolerant I suppose of the other swans on their territory including their own signets where they get pretty well grown Uh, so yeah just to show that this signet obviously couldn't take the hint or wasn't maybe something wrong with it it wasn't able to fly away and unfortunately it, it paid the ultimate price it's sad to see but interesting as well Yeah, well, of course, Niall, is that not just survival of the fittest in a sense? I mean, if this signet was so dopey that it didn't know it had to go away, it hadn't, presumably it wasn't an only child, its other siblings had gone away. It wasn't going to be behaving like a normal one. It was going to be, you know, not able to breed properly or anything else. It should have gone off to join the bachelor party. So then he couldn't be putting up with Egypt and so he got rid of it. It's very cruel to see and it's the way it was done and filmed. But we uh, nature is red and tooth and claw and quite often we don't see these kind of things happening but they're there to make sure that it is the survival of the fittest, the ones most fit to breed, the ones most fit to cope with their surroundings. They're the ones that survive. That's absolutely right, Aina. We can't judge wild animals by our own moral standards. They have their own standards and their own ways of living and they're very pragmatic about it. They're not so sentimental as we are. And in this case, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. This signet uh, didn't have what it took. Um, It didn't take the hint from the father and unfortunately for it, it was killed. But uh, horrible though it is to think of it in these terms, Mm -hmm. um, it's, you know, the fact is it's parents, their whole purpose for, for living really is to pass on their genes to the next generation so they will pass those genes on to the next generation and so on and so on and a signet that can't do that well it's little use to those parents and that's a horrible way to think about it in human terms that seems abhorrent to us but that's the way nature is and it happens all the time in, in, in the wild it's just I because know, we just don't see it don't see, and swans are big and obvious and, and yeah it happens all the time oh, so yeah nature's tough anyway here's another one that you'll find very interesting Aina I'm sure and it has to do with a rook on a chimney pot and it comes from John Tobin in Trim Hi, John Tobin here. It was one of the cold snap days there during the after in January when it was really cold that few days we got there. I was sitting in my car and I was looking up at the roof of my house. I live in a little bungalow just outside the town of Trim near a village called Dunderry. And um, I noticed there was a crow sitting on the edge of the uh, chimney. Next thing I saw him popping up onto the uh, chimney pot. And it was quite smoky now. And next thing I noticed, he was uh, had his wings spread out and he was sitting up like if he was sitting in the smoke. And uh, I thought that was rather strange. So I was wondering then what he was doing. I was thinking to myself, would it be some form of a de-lousing himself or was it mites or something like that? And I said, I, I didn't think that could be the case. So I thought to Derek Mooney and his sh- Mooney Goes Wild. So I sent in the clip to you. So um, it's interesting to know um, what he was doing and uh, just to find out exactly what goes on. A rook, I think, actually is what they are. Yeah, the more common type we have here, yeah. But uh, that that was it, basically. I never saw them doing that before now and I'm, 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 I'm in my mid-60s and I never saw a crow doing that before anywhere. You know, I never, I'd never seen that phenomenon before. So I hadn't. So what do you think of that, Aina? 
Yes, indeed. The man is quite right. The this, this, this rook is actually using the smoke to clean under his oxters. He was waving up one wing and then holding up the other wing and standing in the smoke. And it's literally to kill the parasites that are in its feathers. It's like, I mean, if, if the crow gets wet, the, the water isn't going to wash it. So he can't go in and have a shower as such. So he really needs to kill these. And the smoke does the job for him. It's probably fairly hot up there with the smoke coming right up through the chimney but on the same time it's what the, 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 these birds need in order to get rid of the parasites. In fact they won't be any friends of Eamon Ryan's if all the smokeless fuel and all the fossil fuels have been banned. <laughs> what will they use then I wonder when there's no longer any smoke? That's exactly it. Yes, that's precisely what this bird was doing. And rooks and, and some other crow species are actually quite well known for this. They are literally fumigating their plumage uh, by using the, the fumes from the smoke. Obviously, that's very toxic. And if the bird was to stay there too long, was to breathe in too many lungfuls of that smoke, that'd be quite harmful for it. But of course, all the little mites and ticks and lice and things in its feathers, they uh, can tolerate it even less. And many of them, it'll kill them outright. The others, what they'll do is that they'll just let go because they uh, they realise that actually they're in a very toxic environment and this isn't something that they they want. I'm sure the fact as well that it was such a cold day uh, won't, have, won't have hurt the rook either because that, that smoke, as you said, it would have been nice and warm up there, so that would have helped, but certainly the primary motivation would have been removing these parasites from the feathers. And there's other ways that birds do this too. Sometimes on very sunny days, you'll see crows, and particularly blackbirds, they often do this as well, lying down on the ground, spreading out their wings, literally sunbathing, splaying out the feathers to let the ultraviolet light from the sun uh, kill those parasites as well. Oh, so is that what it is? That's what it is, yeah. So in the same way if you're in the barber and they're they're uh, sterilising the utensils using ultraviolet light. That's exactly what those birds are doing when they're when they're sunbathing. But you often see them scratching too, Nile. They do. I mean, I mean, there are feather lice, aren't there? Oh, there are. Yes, and absolutely. And and, and a lot of that would be dislodged by, by printing with their beaks or by scratching with their claws. Today, actually, I saw some rooks. They're getting a bit amorous now at this time of year. The courtship is beginning. The nesting season isn't too far away. And uh, there was a pair on the roundabout just near my house doing what we call aloe preening, where they're removing parasites from each other. People will be familiar often with seeing chimps and other apes doing this um, on TV where they're grooming each other's fur. Birds do that as well, particularly the crows. It's a way of strengthening this pair of bonds. Pigeons, I'm thinking of. Yes, they do it as well. That's they right. look like they're necking. That's right, yes. Very, yeah, very much so. <laughs> Literally, they're, they, they look like they're necking. Description of, absolutely. And uh, that's, a, that's a, a very beneficial thing for those birds. It helps to, to remove these parasites and, and reach the spots that they can't reach themselves. But more importantly than that, it's a bonding experience. It's a way of showing that they've literally got each other's backs and they can count on each other. So that's a very important uh, thing there as well. And another way as well that birds will remove parasites, sometimes you'll see, again, blackbirds mainly, but many other species, I've seen robins doing it as well, and, and dunnocks, lying down on the ground very still, even if it's not that sunny. And if you look closely, you'll see they're letting ants run all over their feathers. And the ants will go through the bird's feathers. They secrete a formic acid. So anyone who's ever got bitten by an ant, that's formic acid that's just been injected into you. It's, a, it's quite a potent toxin. Uh, and that will also then kill the parasites in, in the feathers. And some of the ants, they will also eat some of those parasites as well. So yeah, birds are very resourceful when it comes to getting rid of the parasite load. Um, do you use ants to get rid of your <laughs> parasites, Aina? Well, I was just thinking about, about that and um, thinking nettles would do the same job. You get the same formic acid in nettles. So presumably the, the, the birds are not jumping in the nettles because they, their skin wouldn't be exposed. They have so many feathers. But, but nettles would do the same job with the formic acid. But I'm glad to hear that they're using the sun. So they're using renewable energy rather than smoke. So they won't be at a disadvantage whenever we all stop having smoke coming out of the chimneys. Maybe you know, they'll learn to actually maybe perch on those wind turbines at the edge. They can spin around, it'll fling all the parasites off. Maybe that's the next step. <laughs> anyway, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash Moody. And why not do what our regular listeners have done, which is make a video if you can. Do not disturb any creature, needless to say, particularly around this time of year when they might be thinking about pairing off. But if you notice anything unusual... Send it in to us, OK? Send it in, a little video or a photograph, and we will put it to the panel to see what they think about it. rte.ie forward slash Mooney. Now, you know Merlin Woods in Galway now, do you not? I do. I've been there a few times. Nice spot, actually. Yeah, great place to be. Well, the mental well-being effects of forest bathing, experiencing the sights, sounds and smells of a woods like Merlin Woods or just switching off technology and going for a walk in nature are well documented. Friends of Merlin Woods are one of many groups enjoying the benefits of the natural world in their community. They promote the biodiversity of the large urban woodland on the 
east side of Galway City and they've been recording changes in insect, plant and animal life there over the last 10 years, which they believe are occurring due to climate change. Caroline Stanley is a founding member of the group and we spoke to her earlier from her home in Galway. Great to be on the show. Our woodland is an urban woodland. It's the mixed broadleaf woodland with conifers and native species. It's also got limestone pavement, Annex 1 meadowlands, and it used to have a river running through it in the past. It certainly sounds like a lovely place, followed by a diversity. And you've been studying it now with your group for the last 10 years. And I suppose you've been doing all the things, the plants, the insects, the birds, the whole lot. So you've been noticing, I gather, that there are new species appearing now that you weren't seeing 10 years ago. And they definitely weren't there. It's not that you're getting more expert at things, but there are new species arriving in your woodland that weren't there 10 years ago. Um, I suppose ones I, we could really talk about would be the dragonflies. So in 2016, we first noticed the emperor dragonfly moving into Merlin Woods. And we would have seen it, you know, uh, been, been shown to be in the south and the, the southeast of Ireland, but not over in the west coast. So the, it was really exciting to see it coming in, you know, because I think it's a migratory species originally. And it's been making its way across Ireland and up towards the north as well. And then last year we saw the migrant dragonfly, migrant hawker. It was very exciting to see both of those because they're huge big dragonflies, both of them, and very different in coloured. So it's not a question of any mistaken identity. And of course, they're spreading by flying. So they fly, they mate, they lay their eggs. And then these larvae are able to hatch out and catch food in the water probably for up to two years before they emerge as adult dragonflies. So the situation is obviously suitable for, first of all, the actual adult to fly further in good weather and mate. And then secondly, then when it does lay its eggs in the water, they're able to hatch out and find enough food and the waters are at the right temperature for that as well. So this is quite a big change to get two different ones, and it's certainly an indication that the climate is changing. And I expect there's probably other insects that might be that way as well. I mean, butterflies are one that spring to mind, things like fritillaries, for example. I'm sure you've got fritillaries there, have you? Oh, we do. We have the, uh, well, we have the silverwash fritillary. Now, we haven't got the dark green or the pearl bordered yet you know but they'd been kind of clare and places like that what we'd have seen say in portumna making its way over here would be the comma butterfly and we noticed that last year i think in around portumna woodlands so we would do a lot of i suppose investigating other woodlands as well for different species so it's quite unusual to see the comma all the way over there as well so we'd be expecting that to arrive in merlin as well if it's making its way this westerly On the one hand, you might think, well, this is a good news story, your biodiversity is actually increasing. But there there could be a disconnect between even the species you have and the food plants that the the creatures need. I mean, for example, if you talk about your silver-washed fritillary, the caterpillars of that feed on the dog violet. So the dog violet is quite an early early plant but if the place gets warmer and warmer you could have a situation whereby your dog violet has come and gone before your silver wash fertility larvae are in a position to go eating and this would be bad for the species and it would be caused by the disconnect between the the, the food plant being ready at the time the insect is waiting to eat it. That would be a big worry I think as if plants and insects started becoming out of sync you know because you know, without the the plant being there, the butterflies or the insects that use them for their larval food plant will definitely um, go extinct, you know. And we do say that to people, you know, the, the effects we have on our habitats can cause local extinction. And, you know, it's a knock-on effect then, you know. It not only affects the the insect itself, but it may affect the birds that are feeding on these or the dragonflies that are feeding on the smaller insects as well, you know. Another species that has a, a, you know, a very tight schedule, if you like, is bats. I mean, bats come out of hibernation and they, they feed on aerial insects. And if the weather is getting warmer, well, then your bats might waken up earlier because of the increased temperature. But will there be enough insects 
ready and flying about waiting for them to pounce on them and gobble them up. Have you been monitoring your bat? Have you bat species there? Have you early first records? How how are they shaping up, do you reckon? Yeah, and one thing we have noticed is bat species out earlier in the year and out in the daytime, you know, in the the late winter, like January, February time of year, and maybe out at six o'clock and even when you're not really expecting them to be out. And we've even noticed them in town at 12 o'clock in the day in January, which was very surprising, which shows that they are waking up earlier and they're obviously hungry as well, you know. So it is quite worrying when you see things that shouldn't be out out and about hedgehogs is another thing as well you know that can be out early and the problem with these creatures that hibernate which bats and hedgehogs do is that when they're hibernating they have lowered their body temperature they have lowered their metabolic rate so they have to get that up to to waken up and they use their stores of fat for that and it isn't really spring there could be a really cold snap at the end of february beginning of march insects would be no longer available but they really haven't got enough energy to go back to sleep so it is precarious for bats and for hedgehogs to emerge from hibernation and then have jumped the gun as it were hanging around when there's nothing for them to eat i mean that is certainly not something we would want to look at and see happening in in an area where we are Absolutely, yeah. And you see it even with trees, you know, like if you were to look at trees, you know, when when the winter is warm, some of them are already coming into leaf or into blossom. And then you get another hard frost or a cold spell. It kills off the new growth with the cold. And then the tree has to go back into that process again. So it puts the trees under stress, which may cause diseases as well in the in the trees itself, you know. Hi, Caroline. It's Niall here. Um, Merlin Wood is a place I've had the, the great uh, pleasure of visiting uh, myself, and it really is a wonderful oasis for biodiversity, beside a, a busy city and a growing city. How important is that to, to the residents of Galway themselves? And do you get lots of visitors? And how can people visit such a, this wonderful location? It's very, very important to the community. And I think more than anything, COVID has shown all communities how important their green spaces are. It was full to the brim, as you can imagine all green spaces were and it's it's constantly under threat from somebody trying to develop on it or thinking I can take a piece here or take a piece there but when you have 30,000 people living around it that are are the communities that live around it it's a vital piece of greenland for the people and then you have the problem you know you need to keep some space for wildlife as well so it's trying to balance the needs of wildlife and people which we work quite closely with Goa City Council Parks Department on and we work really close to, to look at ways we can balance those needs, you know, giving people space to walk, but also reminding people there's wildlife here as well. And how do we stop all the trampling which can occur with people entering into wildland places, do you know? Are local people proud of their woodland? And can I ask, do you have much of a problem with antisocial behaviour and littering and dumping and so on that blights so many of our beauty spots and nature reserves around the country? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I like, uh, you know, you have different types of littering. You have the littering of the the walkers or the school kids maybe going home from schools because a lot of kids use it now as a shortcut home from school, which is fantastic. You know, it means they're out of their cars, you know, they're walking or on their bikes going through the woodlands home. But then with sometimes with that comes litter, uh, just dropped litter. Then you have people that will maybe walk the rubbish into the woods and dump it there. And then you have people that will throw rubbish straight over the wall into the woods, you know, or drive in, drive up near it and throw the rubbish into the woodlands. But we do litter picks, so we try and keep control of that. And then the city council itself has uh, community wardens which will collect the rubbish bags that are left up around the place. So it keeps a little bit of a handle on it, but littering is such a problem. And then you have the drinking litter, you know, where because we're in an urban woodland, you're surrounded by uh, housing estates all around you. And then so you're going to have young people or sometimes adults in there having a, uh, a drinking party or sitting down enjoying the woodland space. But it'd be great if they tidied up after them, you know, and were a bit more aware of the damage that can happen just from leaving broken glass around, you know. You'd have, you know, people complain about their dogs getting their feet cut. But if a fox gets a, his foot cut or a squirrel gets their foot cut, nobody's there to bring them to the vet, you know, so that means probably the end of their lives, you know.
Yes, it's certainly a challenge when it comes to these spaces. I think, though, that peer pressure can play a major role here. I think I always think that if people see this kind of bad behaviour, they should call people out on it if it's safe to do That's so. That's very hard to do that, though. It, it, what it is. Yourself. It is. I do, and, I, 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 and I've been hesitant myself to in many cases. Uh, I know with some of our birdwatch on nature reserves, we see this quite a bit. But um, I suppose that, you know, that things are changing and more and more people are realising that this is unacceptable. But I think that, you know, focusing on the positive, I suppose, in, in Merlin Wood, it is such a great amenity for the local community. It's um, really interesting to see this study going on. Were there any particular surprises during the, the course of the, the last 10 years or so, Caroline, apart from the, the changes we've seen um, in, in maybe due to climate change? Any really unusual species? And, and what would be your favourite uh, creature that you'd find there? Oh, I, I love the dragonflies. You know, like we've 10 species of dragonflies. And sometimes, you know, now how, you know, we get our species verified. You know, there's a great page actually on uh, Facebook called Insects and Invertebrates of Ireland. Because we always like to make sure we're verifying our, our records, do you know? And then we load them up to Biodiversity Data Centre. I suppose the dragonflies, I think one of the ones which they thought was funny that was there was the black darter, I think. Because it's more associated with bogland kind of stuff. The or- orchids, of course, are an amazing thing in Merlin Woods. You know, we've we're up to 10 species of orchids now. And the meadows there is fantastic. You know, you've over, I think the last time we did a count on this different wildflowers and grasses, there was over 60 species in one meadow, you know, which is pretty incredible for uh, a meadowland. And that's meadows that are cut rather than, you know, it's not that we have any animals going in um, grazing on it. It's, It's cut once a year and then collected. Thank you very much indeed, Caroline. Now, we're all the time mentioning on this programme invasive species and the threats they cause to our biodiversity. Well, the invasive greater white-toothed shrew was first discovered in Ireland in barn owl and kestrel pellets in 2007. Genetic studies have revealed that France was the likely origin and is spreading at an extremely rapid rate at around five kilometres per year in Ireland and are now found as far north as Longford and Cavan and as far west as Galway. Studies in 2012 and 2014 revealed that the native pygmy shrew was disappearing wherever the invasive greater white-toothed shrew had become established. You see the problem. Alan McDevitt is a lecturer at the Atlantic Technological University in Galway, formerly GMIT, and is lead investigator into the study. He joins us now from Galway. Hello, Alan. How this shrew got here in the first place is still a bit of a mystery, is it not? Yeah, it has certainly puzzled us for quite a few years uh, since we discovered in about 2011, 2012, that wherever this new invasive shrew was, the greater white to the true, we found that the pygmy shrew had disappeared. And we were certainly perplexed at the time because the two species normally coexist uh, with one another in the European continent. And so we needed to set aside some time to investigate this to discover why the pygmy was going missing essentially. So one of the original ideas that we thought might be a major factor was that perhaps this new bigger invasive shrew uh, was eating all the food of the pygmy shrew and we uh, started to investigate this in uh, 2016. And what did you find? And what we found was that taking their food, essentially, we extracted uh, DNA from it, basically able then to find all the remains of prey in it. It's a a more modern technique called DNA metabarcoding, which is a a little bit more efficient in identifying prey species than trying to look through, you know, looking for bits of legs here or bits of wings, etc. So... What we found was that the greater white to the true, when it initially comes into an area, uh, because it's a bigger animal, it tends to eat bigger slugs, snails, millipedes, beetles. But then after it becomes established, it essentially starts to then finish out all the big things and then starts to eat the smaller food, which is more important for the pygmy shrew, which is a smaller animal. And then what we found was happening is that the pygmy shrew was disappearing wherever the greater white to the true was present. So essentially dietary competition is what we think is leading to a very rapid demise of the pygmy in Ireland. 
And where did the greater white toothed shrew come from in the first place? The pygmy was already here, was it? From at least what we know, the pygmy shrew has been in Ireland, you know, certainly for thousands of thousands of years, and it's actually it has been Ireland's only shrew. So it it really hasn't had any competitors, you know, for all this time. Um, and then. In 2007, the Greater White to the True was discovered in Tipperary in the first in the pellets of uh, barn owls and kestrels. And we did some genetic work in 2016. And we think uh, the, the most likely scenario is that Irish Greater White to the Trues are more similar to French Greater White to the Trues on the continent. And we think that it's probably that whenever tree nurseries and things like this were being uh, transported over to Ireland, because there's a lot of them around Tipperary, that the greater white to the true probably was taken, you know, hiding in these and uh, able to survive the essentially the, the boat trip over, because it would only take a few individuals, and then all of a sudden then the population exploded not long after that. Do they breed like rabbits? Well, they're certainly a little bit different than the pygmy shrews are, you know, a more solitary animal, but greater white to the shrews are actually a very social shrew. They live in communal nests and they they definitely breed quickly. We think they breed multiple times a year and we think probably their breeding season is a little bit longer as well. Every litter in which they might have three or four potentially a year, you know, can have six, seven, eight individuals within that. So we, as you can imagine, it's quite a rapid expansion outwards from that and a, a big population because wherever you might have four or five pygmy shrews, you would have 30 or 40 of this invasive greater white to the shrew in the same area. Alan, in much of the continent, the greater white-toothed shrew is known by another name, the house shrew, because unlike the pygmy shrew, it habitually likes to come inside human dwellings, where it can make a bit of a nuisance of itself, not because it causes damage in the way that rodents would, like rats and mice, but because it tends to smell particularly badly. Is this something that you're getting more reports of, and is this something that listeners will start to notice more and more? Yeah, smell like what, Nile, before Alan answers that? It's pretty unpleasant. It smells like damp coats and urine, essentially. It's a really Lovely. Alan. Yes, it's something that you would definitely notice if you actually came across it. It's even you can smell them in the hedgerows a little bit as well. If, if you're around the area where they're densely packed. And yes, in as in France, and they call it the house shrew, and Switzerland as well, they're definitely well known for coming into dwellings in the cold winters too. And we've certainly had people in Ireland, you know, get in contact, you know, speaking about exactly where it is, you know, almost thinking that they're mice because they come into houses because the pygmy shrew generally won't really, you know, we might see cats might bring it as where you would see a pygmy shrew, but these will come into houses definitely and because they're more more social as well you will have probably a group of them in a house as opposed to just one of them and that can be particularly nasty if you have then the smell associated with the males which is caused by these big glands they have along their side which become bigger and more smelly during the breeding season. I understand as well, Alan, that shrews generally have fewer predators than other small mammals of, of comparative size. Birds of prey will generally eat them, so uh, hawks and owls and so on and falcons. But I believe that mammalian predators, of foxes and so on, tend to give them a wide berth. Is that is that because of the smell and, and the bad taste, I believe, as well? Yes, because even our, our native pygmy shrew would not be eaten yeah, very regularly by like foxes and you know pine martens and things like this. It will certainly show up from time to time. And that's even cats, you know, will often just like leave them because of this kind of scent that they tend to have. So they're not, generally speaking, a big component, certainly, of our terrestrial mammalian predators. But they seem to be, you know, are eaten more regularly by, as you say, birds of prey certainly and crucially birds of prey have very little by way of a sense of smell or taste so that might might explain that i suppose you mentioned um earlier that hold on a second there nile birds of prey have little by way of taste or smell yes what's the point of eating well, well, I mean, <laughs> to live and survive sustenance, I know. Do they ever get any pleasure out of having a meal? I, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily describe it as pleasure. I certainly they, they feel satisfied. They're not hungry any longer, but they don't generally eat because they like the taste. And we know that uh, that birds in general have far, far fewer taste buds than, uh, than mammals do and a much, much weaker sense of smell. Apart from some seabirds, which have a very mm. uh, developed sense of smell, and some of the, the vultures found in the Americas, which can smell rotting carcasses. Though the vultures in the old world can't do that. They have to use visual 
visual cues. So no, birds have very poor sense of taste and smell, which might be why they eat these <laughs> these shrews that everyone else finds <laughs> yeah, disgusting. The blind Martin didn't feel the same way. <laughs> anyway, continue. Yes, so so Alan, you mentioned earlier that uh, these two species, the pygmy shrew and the greater white-toothed shrew, coexist quite well in mainland Europe in many places, but that doesn't seem to be the case here in Ireland. Why would that be? Is it because there are also other mammalian species there, small mammals that are somehow acting as a buffer between them? I know here in Ireland we have a very poor diversity of small mammals compared to continental Europe. Yeah, that's certainly the the best thinking we have of it at the minute in that even if we think of our nearest island, Britain, Britain has the common shrew, the water shrew as well, as well as certain species of voles, you know, more so than we have with just the bank voles. And we think because of this bigger small mammal community, the pygmy shrew can probably hang on because there's enough niche separation and competition between the other small mammals. And the pygmy shrew tends to exist in really small numbers in most of the continent but will still be there. In Ireland the pygmy shrew is a little bit more abundant than it tends to be in the rest of its range but because then in Ireland as I say it's it's been on its own for thousands of years with no competitors and then all of a sudden you have something new coming in which is much more densely populated in the same area and there's just not enough time for it to adapt to this new predator. Richard. Alan, shades of the red-grey squirrel controversy. The larger shrew doesn't eat, the smaller doesn't attack it. It's something else that's doing this. Now, if food is the source of the problem, then you would expect the pygmy to seek out places which don't suit the larger animal. For instance, places where there are no or very few large invertebrates and a lot of little ones that the white-throated shoe wouldn't be that interested in. Is there any evidence of pockets of pygmy shrew forming in isolation from the white-throated ones? At the moment, we don't have enough evidence in Ireland of that particularly happening but there is some optimism potentially that you know in habitats out west perhaps in more boggy or peatland type areas that we know that's a habitat for instance that the greater white to the true is not really part of its normal range in uh, continental Europe so there could be that the pygmy shrew is kind of known as a, a more species found there even in Britain in relation to the common shrew so some hope maybe that whenever the greater white reaches those areas where pygmies are present as well that potentially the pygmy shrew might be able to hold on in certain regions like this but until we see the greater white to the true colonizing these areas we won't really know what's going to happen in those places yet the pygmy is also present on quite a lot of ireland's offshore islands as well and they might become more important um, and we have to make sure for instance that the greater white doesn't actually end up reaching the, those offshore islands as well because they could be in the future quite important populations or refuges if you like for the pygmy shrew in Ireland. Well now you like shrews Alan correct? I certainly do yes. <laughs> so you like the pygmy shrew and you like the greater white toothed shrew as well but you don't want them in the same place at the same time so what are you going to do? Well, the, one of the issues is at the minute that, you know, what can we do at the minute? Like, I have to admit, I'm someone who did my original studies on the pygmy shrew as part of my PhD before the greater white to the true arrived. So I certainly have a lot more affinity for the pygmy shrew in Ireland than the greater white to the true. But I think it's even though not a case of just, you know, these two shrews, it still probably highlights the wider problem of invasive species in general and what can happen if we bring a new species into into a novel environment of just how rapidly things can change for a native species. We never thought that this happened, you know, something this negative and something so quickly, you know, based on the fact that they are together in the continent. But it shows you just how unexpected the consequences can be if we're not careful in what we're essentially moving around. Are you going to do anything about them? Are you going to suggest that we eliminate them? Well, the, the reality is we have to face it that elimination is not 
possible. Like if for a shrew, which is the greater white to the true now spread over such a large area in Ireland, there is eradication is not a feasible management plan for them. They've demonstrated this on uh, other islands where there has been different species of shrew invaded and it's it's just simply not possible with a small mammal like that to trap it out over such a large area now. And as I say, it's present as far north as Longford, it's in Galway, it's in Dublin, and we predict it's probably going to be throughout the whole island by maybe 2050, 2060, based on current modelling. So I think probably we do have to consider maybe of where there might be pockets where the pygmy shrew can ha hold on to essentially in Ireland like the islands perhaps in the west but probably the main thing is that we have to kind of continue to monitor what's going on with the two species but thank I still say I like the pygmy shrew yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much indeed Alan it was lovely to speak with you and please the next time you're in Dublin pop in and see us no worries okay, thanks Alan. for having me on thank you bye bye I know you enjoy that, Niall, because you're a big fan of shrews, are you not? I am, I like them, pygmy shrews particularly, because they're so, so small. It's actually amazing to me that in that tiny little mammal's body, you can have like a brain and, and a heart and a pair of lungs and a pair of kidneys, all the other organs that they require to live. And uh, yeah, it just blows my mind. They're so, so small. Anyway, before we go, I want to mention RTEI on Nature. We've been running this competition for the last three years. We started in 2021. We had in excess of 7,500 entries. Then last year we had thousands again and two great winners in the past two years. And if you're a fan of Nationwide and you're watching Nationwide next Wednesday the 15th in two days time, you will be able to see the launch of RTEI on Nature 2020. Three in association with Mooney Goes Wild and our friends at the National Botanic Gardens in Glasnevin. Next week, we'll talk to Dr. Matthew Jebb, who's director of the gardens, a little more about the competition. But Niall Hatch, one of our regular panellists, is one of the judges this year. Niall, can I enter a photograph myself? No, you're not allowed. Our oh, employees no. of RTE are not permitted. So sorry, Derek. No. All right. So tell us a little bit about the competition. Well, first of all, I'm really excited to be back involved with it again. It really is fun because the last two years, the level of entries, the quality, the incredible. standard has been absolutely incredible. And uh, anything can win it. So the, the winner the first year was was a ladybird. Uh, That's right. Yeah. And then last year's winner was a lovely red squirrel. So mm. and no no bird winners yet. So I hope we will see some of those. But I won't. I'll be impartial. It's all down to the best photograph, as far as I'm concerned, bird or no bird. Uh, but the, the great thing about it is it's a real celebration of Irish wildlife um, in all its forms. The idea being that your photograph has to be taken on the island of Ireland or its associated offshore islands and territorial waters, uh, and uh, it's really a celebration of amateurs and professionals all alike you can all take part in it the only stipulations have to be that if you are taking pictures that would require a licence from the National Parks and Wildlife Service you must provide proof of that so a good example would be if you're taking photographs of birds at or near their nests that would have to be done in such a way that uh, you have a licence for it and it's all ethical uh, and also you're only allowed to enter one photograph per person mm. um, actually give you a little bit of a, a tip here if anyone's listening to this there's been several cases where we've been judging this where somebody was really in the running to win and then we realised they'd submitted multiple photographs and we had to eliminate them no. because of that because rules send are rules send your best yes you send your best one don't Just hedge your one. don't hedge your bets ask your friends and family and other photographers you know what's your favourite of these shots and send that one in don't send in two or three and it has to be your own work you can't send someone else's is there an age limit uh, so people have to be over the age of 18 uh, and you have to um, uh, assert that you have the copyright in that photograph it can't have been uh, taken on behalf of somebody else and it can't have been entered in any other national photo competition it's fine if it was a local camera club competition or something like that but anything that was open uh, to people all across Ireland on a national basis I'm afraid you can't enter that photograph Okay well tune into Nationwide on RTE1 television next Wednesday in two days time to find out all about RTE Eye on Nature 2023 and happy birthday by the way to Nationwide who are celebrating 30 years on air this year we're in our 28th year can you believe it but they are 30 years they're two years older than us can you believe it anyway that's all we have time for my thanks to Aidan Elanda Richard Collins and Niall Hatch visit the website anytime you like rte.ie forward slash Mooney till next time goodbye 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 and Mooney Goes Wild was presented and produced by Derek Mooney